0: Let me just make sure I don't bore you too long. Uh, This talk ends at 11.45. And I have 11.17, but I think this is wrong. What time is it? Um, So we have about 25 minutes. So so 11.42, according to my watch. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So I'm very fond of a saying that's attributed to Albert Einstein, which is to make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. And uh, with that in mind, mantras are very attractive to me because there are short little sayings that you can just remember and you're like, that's all I have to do. And so I kind of am going to organize my talk around sort of a four short saying mantra that I sort of use for everything in life. Um, And before I share it, uh, I have no idea if it'll be helpful to any of you. Uh, I have no idea if it'll be helpful to me in the future. Maito once said in a Dharma talk, you must constantly reposition yourself. So it works for me now. It didn't work for me four years ago. I have no idea. John Cheslock is the future. I have no idea what what will work for him. But the four parts are uh, wake up, each breath, Or if you're doing something other than paying attention to your breath, you can substitute that in each part of the breath and then each object that arises. And so I'm going to go through each of those. And, you know, for each one, I'm going to just sort of share various thoughts that relate to that and how it's useful to me. Um, I'll share some personal reflections. I'll also steal shamelessly from numerous teachers before. So if you like my talk, you should primarily thank Mito or Joseph Goldstein, or Sharon Salzberg, or Marvin Belzer. uh, Maybe there's a few things you should thank me for, but I may have had the common sense to pick the nuggets of wisdom that they've shared with me over time. Um, So let's then go into the idea of wake up, waking up. which. um, So in the early parts of my practice, I would be at the cushion and I would have the moments where all of a sudden I would say, I've been meditating for 20 minutes and I haven't been mindful for one second or 40 minutes, or I don't know how long it is. And you would have the immediate thing of like, I'm such a bad meditator or like, come on, John, focus or something like that. And then I would hear teachers say, first of all, don't do that because you're clinging to something. You're, you're missing the whole purpose of this. You're clinging to, I must have this experience. But they they also, the thing that I also found incredibly valuable of it is they would say, notice that moment, that moment when you're just lost. And then the moment when all of a sudden you're saying, here I am, like, like that waking up process, like just, you know, I almost then have an appreciation when I'm lost for 20 minutes. Uh, I'm not, you know, publicly suggesting you should just be lost during your meditation session to wake up. But uh, when that does happen. Um, and you wake up, you say, oh, wow, there's like such a big difference between not waking up and then waking up that moment. Like there's a completely different experience as a human being. And, and so I've really, you know, when I, when I wake up, I just say, wake up. And I just try to really notice that feeling. Um, and then it's also interesting, you know, just to reflect like what wakes you up. Right? Why, when I sit on this cushion, do I go for 15 minutes and all of a sudden I'll say, wait a second, I'm sitting on a cushion. All right, let me pay attention to my in-breath now. Like, what is it? And one thing I've, I don't know if you can choose this or not, but one thing I've noticed is the idea of various things that serve as mindfulness bells, right? Uh, So, you know, this can be a mindfulness bell and the idea of dukkha, right? Whether you translate it as suffering, unsatisfactoriness, unfulfilling, whatever it is, like that moment of like a mindfulness bell, like all of a sudden is like, I am suffering right now. I'm just, it feels unsatisfactory. It feels unfulfilling this moment. And just that feeling can just make you say, oh, there's a practice. There's something to do right now. There's a practice. Like I don't have to just sit in this state. I can have this practice. And so very much that idea of what I like to say is dukkha as a meditation bell uh, just then makes life a lot simpler because no matter what happens, there's always that. Even, you know, in the absolute worst, most difficult moments, but even in the simple things such as, you know, I want more pleasure or something like that. So, you know, the other a mantra I've heard other people say of the idea of short moments many times, because when I first started sitting, I used to think, you know, there's going to be a moment where it's just going to be you know, uh, enlightenment and then bliss and hasn't worked out for me, uh, that way. Um, but, and I don't think it's ever going to work out for me that way, but the idea of, uh, short moments of waking up, right. And trying to do it many times. And so maybe the period at which you're lost or you're lost in dukkha shrinks over time. Uh, that's a mantra that I've heard. That's been very, very helpful. Um, and so really gain a sense of waking up. Let me share a recent thing that I've I, I had that was kind of very, very unpleasant. But it, I say, hey, there was a real upside to that unpleasantness. And I, I'll skip you all the details, but I'm going to describe it very generally. And, and maybe you've had experiences as well. And the very general description is the world was unfair to me and the world did not recognize how unfair it was. There were other people, they were unfair to me, and they didn't really realize how unfair they were. And, uh, were they really unfair to me? I don't know, but that's the thoughts my brains were giving to me. I'm actually been blessed quite a bit in my life, but I had this whole thought pattern of it and I would find, I would think about it all the time and I actually really didn't like to think about it because there wasn't anything to do about it. Uh, I would mostly just think about, boy, they were unfair to me and I would think about, and then I, what would often happen is I would then start to contemplate, um, oh, you know what? Maybe there'll be a setting where I'll be talking to them and I'll lay out for them perfectly about how they were unfair to me. And then at the end of it, they'll all feel really, really bad. And then I'll give a great speech and this this sort of thing. And so I, I would just go through this and I would be thinking about this. I'd be shaving and I'd be thinking about this. I'd be walking. I'd be sitting on the meditation cushion. I'd be thinking about this. And I'd say, this isn't really how I want to spend my short time on this planet. But there was a quote I heard that's, attributed to the Buddha, uh, that was very helpful to me, which was the poison arrow of anger with its honey, sweet tip. And you know, the fantasizing of letting people know like they were unfair to me was just honey. It was just enough that for whatever reason it was like my brain, it was the little reward that was like, keep thinking about this. Cause that little honey at the end, even though the rest of it felt like poison, right? And so I really love that, the poison arrow of of anger with its honey sweet tip. And so I'm happy for myself and for the world, since I'm more skillful when I'm not in these thought patterns, um, that I don't have that thought pattern very often. And every once in a while I'll have it, and it'll almost be like an old friend. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, boy, I spent a lot of time just in this thought pattern. Um, and so... So that's a thing of waking up, because the thing about it, too, is when I'd wake up from that little narrative in my head, it would just feel so different than being lost in it. And so I just was like, I I, I prefer to wake up here. So, okay. So waking up, and then what do you do when you wake up? Um, And so what I have is each breath. It could be each step. If you're exercising, it could be each step. If you're running, each repetition, if it's of weightlifting, each pose, if it's yoga, you know, each uh, if it's opening a cabinet, each movement opening the cabinet, could be each bite of food, like it works, I've kind of found in everything. And the, the thing I try to do that this mantra can connect with is this idea that, uh, you know, the practice is about finding fulfillment and enjoyment in whatever's happening right now. There isn't something better, right? That's what I've always been told, and one way I phrased it so much is that so much of our experience is kind of leaning into the next moment, right? It's this idea that oh, tomorrow is going to be really good, or as soon as I get through this, that next thing going to oh, it's going to be so good. And you always kind of just you're leaning forward in the next moment. And every once in a while, like one reason why I like to send the cushion is you just have a moment where like this is this is it, like this is good right here. There's nothing more. You know, but most of the time I'm just leaning into the next moment. So the mantra of each, I find those rare moments, it encourages those rare moments where, like, everything is fine right now and there's nothing to lean forward to. There's nothing that's going to be better in the future than this, no matter what this is right here. And I've heard various things that have been helpful for this. The first, uh, Richard Rohr, I think, who's, I think, a Franciscan monk, I, you know, he's been very, very helpful to me because he's kind of like Thomas Merton in, uh, you know, understanding, you know, a lot of Buddhism, like the Buddhism that's within Christianity, so to speak. Um, and, he, and he, he, had a saying once. He said, you know, the really important thing about life is not what you're doing; it's what you're doing while you're doing it, right? And so, you know, I could be doing anything, but what am I doing while I'm doing it? And right, when Buddhism is giving you. A practice that you can be doing while you're doing anything else, and the second doing, uh, you know, whether it's gardening or sitting in front of a computer doing work or something, isn't as important as the first doing, right? Um, And the second thing about you know just engaging each activity is I'm recently reading the book Flow. Michael knows how to pronounce the author. What's the author's name? Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah, don't ask me to say that name. All right, but it's even worse if you look at it spelled out, right? And so basically, the book is just the psychology of ultimate experience is what the title called flow. The psychology of ultimate experience, and it become like a thing flow states, and like everything, kind of like mindfulness, it gets distorted, and you know, in certain conversations, that gets away from the source. But anyway, this book's been really, really interesting because you you read it and you just say. Is kind of like giving you all sorts of tips about how to have the ultimate experience. And the ultimate experience sounds good to me. So, um, so anyway, the book's been really useful. And he goes through a lot of characteristics. Basically, he goes around and asks people, like, tell me about your most meaningful moments in life. Like, what is that experience? Like, what's the ultimate experience? And he goes through a, a large set of characteristics of those. I'll just read some of them that I think is most relevant to, to Buddhist practice. the merging, The merging of action and awareness... Concentration on the task at hand, a loss of self-consciousness, the transformation of time, either things, you know, going, seems like, oh, wow, that ended so quickly, or, oh, each moment has all this depth to it. Um, The paradox of control, which is a sense of control exists, but there is no worry about losing control. uh, A challenging activity that requires skill. And what, what the big question to me, I'm halfway through this book at the moment, uh, but the big question to me is this idea of the challenging, a challenging activity that requires skill, which is this idea that what you need to go. You know, if you read the book, you kind of get the idea of like you need to go develop hobbies and be really, really good at them, and then you'll enjoy them. Like go be. Not that I'm at all uh, Cheslock and Polish means woodworker, and I am the least handy individual known to man, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and a woman like as my wife will attest, right. Uh, and so, um, uh, so anyway, that's, um, uh, but you know, woodworking, right? I could come up with a hobby of woodworking and you read the book and you say, if you just develop this skill over time, as you develop your skill, you know, your enjoyment will go up more and more. But you know, what I take out of it a little bit is again, this idea of Richard Brewer's: what are you doing while you were doing? And you think about what the Buddhist path is, is that like, We're in ways, you know, uh, engaging in action with deep attention in a challenging activity. Everything is a challenging activity. Every step, every breath, every bite, uh, every conversation with another human being is a challenging activity where we're in ways trying to develop skill to engage in skillful activity, skillful action. And so, you know, that's the hobby. The hobby is life uh, in ways. And so which means I could have the ultimate experience no matter what I'm doing, right? Which is pretty exciting. Uh, You know, um, do I actually achieve that on a daily basis? No, but you know, you read the book and you think that's theoretically possible uh, or at least a larger share of my day. So then the idea of wake up and then each, whatever I'm doing, right? Because I have to be doing something. Most of my day is I got to brush my teeth. I got to eat. I got to go to work. I got to drive myself somewhere. Um, Whatever I'm doing, that's it. And then you think about, what is it that I'm doing? I came up with a word at the end. Each breath. Or each step. Or each bite. And, you know, I heard, um, um, uh, Joseph Goldstein gave it, uh, one of his favorite talks that I, that I listen to from time to time. He talks about a painter, Kaczynski, I think, a Russian painter. So one may know more about art than me. I don't know. Kaczynski. There you go. See, Michael is my guide for all things <laughs> cultural and pronunciation. So, for all the yeah, I asked him to sit here. Actually, no one knows this, but I said, "Please sit by me. I need my left, my left hand uh, interpreter." Very good, thank you. But anyway, right there was a profile of this individual, and uh, he, he, he spoke of the experience of looking at these paintings, and he was staring. at their landscape paintings. He was staring at the landscape, and he just stared at him intently and intently and intently and intently. And then at some point, he no longer saw the landscape. All he saw were the brushstrokes. And for whatever reason, it was this incredibly important experience for him uh, to see things as, like instead of a landscape in a painting, just a series of brushstrokes. Which then causes me to you know, sort of think about it, right? I had this idea of each and then breath, but there's no such thing as a breath. Right? in the same sense that in ways buddha said there's no such thing as a fixed self right which is we say there's a breath but you know we also have some time to just sit here and practice this from time to time here like there's the in-breath the space between the in-breath the out-breath and then the space between the out-breath and the in-breath and then repeat but then you say well, well wait a second the in-breath in those rare moments when I'm deeply, deeply mindful, the in-breath has a lot going on to it. There's the beginning, and it just starts right here, and it feels different in the nose. And then it comes in if I'm deep in a breathing. It can come up here. And I mean, it can just be a whole, like there's just a lot going on with the in-breath. And then there's that space between the in-breath and out-breath. And then if you just, again, those rare moments of deep mindfulness, you have that, wow, there's a lot. There's a lot. That's a really interesting spot, that space. And then the out-breath. And it's, the outbreath is so different than the in-breath, but there's like, how many things are in the outbreath, right? And then there's that space, you know, that, and the thing I've been trying to do with food, and again, borrowing from other teachers, right, this idea of notices per activity or notices per thing, like, how many things do I notice in a bite of food? And so I've been, my little hobby now, uh, when I'm blessed with the opportunity to just sit and eat with no distractions and no feeling, I gotta you know, do this, that, it's like, there's the, you can look at the food. You can look at the food as you put on the fork and try it with berries. I recommend like mixed berries because there's all these colors, right? And you look at the food. So there's, so you look at the food, one, you put your fork in the food, two, you move your fork to your mouth, three, and it's kind of fun because if you look at it real slow and the, and the food's coming to you, oh, here it comes, the bite, right? I'm a little kid. I get along really well with three to six-year-olds, so like, you know, I can get, it. here comes the food and then the sensation of putting it on your mouth, right? Um which is, you know, just the, the, before you even have the taste, just the, ah, oh, look at, there's the blueberry on the tongue. And then I, then you take the, the fork out, and then you can just have one moment just to get the anticipation a little bit more. And then there's the chewing, right? So we're on like step six now with the chewing, right? The look, the fork, the bring it in, you place it down in the mouth, the moment before you bite, and then you start chewing. And it, like the first bite, blueberry juice all over the mouth, right? <laughs> and strawberry or raspberry or whatever, and then, like, how many things are in the chewing until it's all gone? Like, at least two. There's the excitement of, like, oh, here's all the flavor, and then you chew up the pulp when most of the flavor's gone. But there's how many things are in there? Like, how many notices are there? I don't know. And then there can just be the notice when you're done, after you swallowed, before you then look at the food. And then I'm like, that's probably more than eight. And so the, each part of it is to, to sort of do that, to just whatever activity it is, there's just, there's just a lot here, Right? And like the interesting thing is, my kids like my my kids had fun with me today. They said, "Have fun sitting on a cushion, Dad." That's what they said to me as I left. They they are really impressed that their dad is so excited that he sits on a cushion, right, and just sits there with no devices, right. And so uh, my point is like, no, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on, but I'm not sure if that lesson will ever be imparted by their dad uh, in a way that they do but that's it. And so that's that third part of the mantra, each part. And, um, uh, so anyway, that's that. The fourth is that thing of each object that arises, which is right. What I've been saying all this time is this idea of directed attention. Like I'm eating and I'm going to direct my attention on the food. I'm sitting on the cushion. I'm going to direct my attention on the breath. I'm walking. I'm going to direct my attention on the step, the steps actually, how many notices can you have in a step? But that's, Again, 1142. Um, uh, And so, but, right, the idea of, well, as opposed to just being in the business of directing my attention, like, could I have choiceless attention, right? Advancing the practice, if you want to call it advancing it, I don't know, but that part of the practice of uh, choiceless attention where I am just sitting, possessing a soft mind that just waits for objects to arise and softly labels them. I, you know, I, I haven't sought, sat seishins for a long period, so I maybe if I sat seishins, I'd spend more of my time in each object that arises, choiceless attention states. I don't. I think they're incredibly valuable, so I, I look forward to, I have a life plan where I'll be sitting more seishins again on down the road, uh, but... You know it's really interesting, and you know sometimes here this is a great place for it if you can have those moments because you're sitting and you're saying all right i 'm not going to choose to focus on my breath, my breath is my anchor, and it's always happening, even if you count the spaces in between breaths it's always happening. but I'll pay attention to my breath, but as soon as something else just pops up into my attention, i 'll just softly notice that and softly label it and then. I guess my attention would turn to the breath, and it's like just all these nature sounds. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about coming here, right? And it was just there, and you hear a bird. And you know, I've heard someone analyze it, and you're like, what's the difference between my foot and that bird? Now, the foot is me, and the bird's not me. But the experience of sitting here, it's kind of the same. I feel my foot. I hear a bird. It's John's foot. The bird's not John. But wait. I, you know. So anyway, that was his attempt to try to, because un- the non-self doctrine just is very confusing for people born in this country, <laughs> me included. It took me a long time to kind of understand it. Um, and so anyway, uh, that, that idea, which I find incredibly valuable, each object that arises and, uh, uh, you know, maybe when someone else is giving a Dharma talk, they can go into great depth into it. Uh, I just have moments with it and I just find it really useful, but it's it requires, you know, practice, regular practice to be able to, you know, it's hard enough to pay attention to the breath, but to pay attention to breath, but not that you're choosing to pay attention to breath. It's just what's happening now. And then you pay attention to something else and you come back and forth. There's just, I find deep insights with it and it's pleasurable, enjoyable. So that's the mantra I use. If you notice, it's very, um, uh, insular. It's all about, you know, me and there's a little bit of, uh, you know, oh, that's pleasurable. And so it's a dangerous mantra in ways, right? It's it's right for me right now. I went through a period where I was very focused on others, often at the detriment of my well-being. And so this is a practice of this, but I'm not sure what it is, right? I know uh, since I've been involved in Vipassana as well as Zen, the meta practice from the Vipassana tradition, I kind of know what to do. I think I need to do a little bit more uh, meta, and there's Traditions within Zen as well of, of uh, you know, directing my attention to other people's well-being. Um, uh, I think that's the next stage of my practice. And one of the useful things of giving a Dharma talk is you have to think about what's my state. And then you look at it and you're like, no, what's missing here? Uh, now, I do know that if, uh, uh, you know, if you put your own uh, oxygen mask on first, right? If I'm not leaning into the next moment, if this moment is perfect, is perfect. Perfectly satisfying to me I act much more skillfully when interacting with others. So there is that but that's where I think that but the one thing I've developed over time and Maito talks a lot about this is the idea of confidence, the word confidence in Buddhism as opposed to faith is you have confidence in the practice. And so if I sit on the cushion, if I take time, if I periodically listen to Dharma talks, I'm confident the practice will lead me where I need to go. Uh, So I look forward to practicing more with all of you.